The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, uh, welcome to Fathom. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, Without any further ado, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's open them up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We have hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open those up to Luke chapter 1. That'll be on page 855. You can open a phone or a tablet uh, to Luke chapter 1, but that's where we're at. As you are meeting me in Luke chapter one, uh, uh, most of you know this, many of you know this, but I'll just uh, let you know anyway. I am a graduate of Colorado Christian University. We got some cougars, yeah. Uh, but but my my CCU experience was twenty years ago, uh, and it was it was less furious than that when we were there. It was more like meow. Like when we were there, but uh, that's okay. There's some cougars in the house. But I went to CCU, okay, graduated from CCU 20 years ago, uh, and it was a mishmash of students from all over the country, different parts of the country, uh, coming from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different upbringings and, and, and even religious backgrounds. And here's where I fit in the, the crew I was the freshman that had a car. See, they know. Okay. Did you guys go to college even? I don't know. Like, oh, you went to a real school with like a football team? Okay, got it. Um, I had a car, okay? I had a car, and, and, and here's what that made me amongst my friend group. I became the, hey, can you pick me up from the airport guy? Okay? That's what every freshman with a car is designated at a small private Christian school is you're the, you're the airport run guy. So I had a lot of friends. Uh, I'm from Colorado Springs, so I didn't need to fly home. I would drive home for Thanksgiving. But I had friends after Thanksgiving and Christmas who would fly back to DIA and ask me. They had the audacity to ask me for a pickup from the airport. Who's the car guy here? Who's got the airport run? You're the, okay, yeah, it's okay. Welcome to my pain. I like this. (laughs) So here's my game, and I'll just let you have it for free, okay? I would find out what time they landed and tell them I couldn't make it to the airport until four hours later. It was just my little way of punishing them, okay? Like, oh, man, you land at one? I can't get there till five, so just hang out by, by that Dunkin' Donuts, okay? Uh, that's what I would do. It's, it was a fun game. Um, but, but, but one of my friends once asked me for a ride. Uh, my fr- this, this, this friend was from Nebraska. Uh, his name was Jed. Uh, and Jed, uh, was, he was raised on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, okay? That's my friend Jed. So I'm picking up Jed from the airport after Thanksgiving. And Jed is big, like he's probably 6'5", burly farm boy. I mean, just like this big old farm guy. And he was always hungry, just always hungry, okay? Uh, he could eat anybody under the table. Uh, and so I pick him up from the airport. First thing out of Jed's mouth isn't, thank you. Uh, the first thing out of his mouth to me, who just made the hour drive is, bro, I am so hungry. Can we stop and get some food on the way back to school? Uh, and I'm the poor college student who has just spent all of my money on gas to pick him up from the airport. And so I'm like, no way, dude. Uh, we will go back to school and we will use a swipe at the calf and we'll eat there, okay? So we get in the car. We're driving I-70 West back towards Lakewood. Uh, Jed is hungry. He keeps talking about how hungry he is. And as we near downtown Denver, uh, Jed says to me, oh, well, man, what's... What's that smell? It smells so good. I'm, man, I'm so hungry. What is that? Now, if you've driven on I-70, as you near I-25 and downtown Denver, are you familiar with what you smell at that moment? Uh, my, my friend Jed has now picked up the scent of the Purina dog food factory. <laughs> if you drive I-25, it's there today. You will smell the dog food. It is something, okay? Um, so I'm like, Jed, you, you're smelling dog food. You're like salivating over the smell of, I don't know what it is, but it's dog kibble. Yeah, we probably should stop. We probably should stop and get you some food. Um, so we stopped at Taco Bell, which is about the same thing. Okay. Church, I, I think sometimes we approach Christmas like that. It's a strange introduction for a sermon, right? Uh, But follow me here. 
I think sometimes we catch a whiff of like what we think Christmas is. Like we, 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 we catch a whiff and we think, oh, oh, that's, that's Christmas. It's, it's presents. Oh, that's, that's, that's the TV specials that I grew up watching. Oh, you catch a whiff of it and it's, it's parties and it's cookies and it's carols. And like we think, oh, that's, that's gotta be Christmas. But I'm telling you, sometimes those whiffs that we catch, it, it's not Christmas. Sometimes it's actually dog food. It's dog food. So we're in this Advent series and we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. Luke records in his first two chapters what we know is our Christmas story. Matthew does this as well at the beginning of his Gospel. But we're in Luke chapter 1 right now and we're reading some really familiar stories. Like if you were raised in church, like if you've gone to, even if, listen, even if you never went to church, some of these stories you know. You know these stories because they're Christmas stories. And what we're doing is we're taking these really rich kind of familiar texts and we're trying to undergird, like figure out where the meat is in these stories. Because I think often we digest them like we digest like some sort of Taco Bell. And it's just sustenance because it's the season. But there's rich, meaningful theology and work to be found in these texts. So that's what we're doing. Last week, we started in Luke chapter one with uh, a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Okay, Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, these are the parents of John the Baptist. And we saw that Zechariah had this ongoing disappointment with God. That is, his, his, his wife was unable to bear children, so they had no children, they had no lineage, they had no heritage. And that disappointment led to him disbelieving God. He didn't trust God, he didn't believe God, which resulted in God disciplining him. Made him quiet for nine months, put, made him mute for nine months. And today, we're gonna look at the second couple of characters that show up in this event in Luke chapter one, and those two are Joseph and Mary. Last week was Zechariah and Elizabeth. This week, we are on Joseph and Mary. And I just, you know these two. You know these two. You know who they are. And I just want you to say, just want to say, before we read the text, don't settle for the dog food version of this. Let's see what the text has for us, because there's so much more here uh, than maybe a populist version of this story Tells. So here we go, Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 26. So if you got your text, look along. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Okay, that sets it up, okay? Six months have passed from what happened last week. Six months since uh, Zechariah was visited by the same angel and told your wife's going to have a baby, name him John, okay? So, so now we have the same angel, Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel uh, showing up in a city. It says a town called Nazareth. Nazareth, okay? Now, we all have heard of Nazareth. We all know Nazareth, and it's only because of this. Okay, we only know about Nazareth because of Jesus of Nazareth. Because hear me, if you hadn't, if Jesus hadn't been from Nazareth, we never would have heard of it. It's a small town. It's so insignificant that it would have been wiped off the face of the planet, and you never would have heard of it. Listen, here's how insignificant it is. Nazareth is not even mentioned in any of the Old Testament, all those lists of people and places, cities, it's never mentioned. That's how small and insignificant this city is. But in Jesus' day, Nazareth is the place where Joseph and Mary live. It's probably a town at this point of uh, between 50 and maybe at tops 200 people. So it's like this. Like this is, you are Nazareth right now, okay? That, you could be the whole city. This could be the whole city. That's how small this town was. Uh, the only way I can think of it is like this. You ever pull up to a truck stop on a road trip? Right, there's like a, there's like a shell station, like a shady motel, and like two or three houses in the surrounding area. You ever, you ever pull through in a truck stop and you look at those houses and think, who in their right mind lives in those houses? And I'll tell you who, it's the people who work at the Shady Motel and at the gas station. That's all it's there for. That, that's Nazareth. You fill up, you get a Gatorade, and you drive on through. That's Nazareth. That's a setup. Okay, verse 27. 
shows up to a, to a city named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So there's our couple. There's our couple, Joseph and Mary. Uh, we know these guys. We know their story. We know the Christmas story. We hear about them every year. Uh, we know they're in the nativity scene. I mean, like you've got, you've probably got figurines of these two. Is that weird to think about? You've got action figures of these two. <laughs> Whittled of wood or something, right? Like that's wild. But, but I, I do think that sometimes we can have like a romanticized version of Joseph and Mary in our minds when we think about this. So let's just talk historical context a bit. First, Joseph was likely a teenager, he was likely a teenager, uh, maybe 16 or 17 years old. Now, I do know that there are some Roman Catholics who have traditionally believed that he was a much older man than this, uh, but most scholars, good scholars, would say it's unlikely that a man of that age would still be unmarried. Uh, this is more likely that he would be a 16, 17, 18-year-old young man. Uh, that's how they married. They married young back in these days. And he's from Nazareth, obviously, so he's a small-town guy. Okay, he's not like a big city guy. He's not a suburbanite, okay? He's hanging out in a small town. And we also know that this couple are extremely poor. We know that they are socioeconomically poor because uh, in chapter two of Luke, when they go to the temple to make a sacrifice after Jesus is born, uh, they sacrifice two pigeons. And two pigeons uh, was the sacrifice of a person who could not afford the prescribed uh, sacrifice, which was a lamb. So they, they, they couldn't afford a lamb, so they, they, they offered two pigeons, meaning they did not have much. They were impoverished. So, so I think we have to kind of get that picture in our mind when we talk about the Christmas story. Picture with me a 16-year-old guy. A 16-year-old, okay? You know, he's trying to grow some facial hair, working on that wispy mustache. It looks a little sketchy at this point, right? Should dye that thing or something. But, um, but that's not much going on there. 16, okay? He's broke. He's a broke kid who took up a trade. Like we think, oh, he's a carpenter. He's probably building awesome chairs and tables that he sells on Etsy. No. <laughs> he's in a town of 50. He's swinging a hammer, fixing wood whenever he can get work. He's not like a trades craftsman at this point. He's just a laborer. He's taken up a trade, and now he's engaged to a young girl from this tiny town. That's Joseph. That's the Joseph that the Bible portrays. And actually, that's all that Luke says about him. We don't get anything else about Joseph in Luke's gospel. There's a little bit more that we find in Matthew's gospel, but we don't have time for that. So that's Joseph. But what about Mary? What about her? Well, the word that we read in the text is that she is betrothed to Joseph. She's betrothed to him. Now, betrothal is not a word that we're super familiar with. Uh, in fact, I was trying to think today if I've, if I've ever heard that word outside of the context of the Christmas story. I'm not sure I have. Betrothal, we know it, like everybody knows what that word means, but it's because we've read the Christmas story. Because we don't do betrothals, just so you know, like none of y'all are betrothed right now, unless I'm unaware of something. Um, we do engagements. We don't do betrothals, we do engagements. But betrothal is the initial stage of the Jewish engagement process. It's the initial stage of the Jewish engagement process. So let me teach you about betrothal, just in case you don't know this. The stage of betrothal involves a formal signed witnessed agreement to marry somebody. It's a formal witnessed agreement and a financial exchange of a bride price. So the bride price is paid in the betrothal. Uh, but then in that betrothal period, the woman is legally belonging to, married to the groom. She is actually referred to as his wife, uh, that's why Matthew's account points out that Joseph would actually have to divorce Mary to break up this betrothal. So they were indeed married legally, but for the first year of this betrothal period, the bride would live with her parents until the marriage ceremony would take place, at which point then the husband uh, could take his wife home and they would consummate the marriage. They would sleep together. So um, we had seven couples get married at Fathom this past summer, okay? 
Uh, some of you are in this room. Uh, additionally, we have, I don't know, another half dozen or so of you who are engaged right now, okay? Uh, and so the question is, anybody in the engagement process in here wanting to trade that out for a betrothal? No, you're not. No, you're absolutely not because, because it's all of the responsibilities of marriage with none of the benefits. That's what betrothal is. That's what betrothal is. So Luke tells us that she's betrothed. He does not give us Mary's specific age, but betrothals came as early as 12 or 13 years old. 12, 13, maybe 14. This is when most scholars think, that's how old most scholars think Mary is. Y'all, she's a middle schooler. Middle school Mary. Call her middle school Mary from now on, okay? That's who she is. Now, I bring all of, it's not gross in their context. It's gross to us in our context. But this is, this is what they did. This is what marriage looked like in the first century amongst Jews. Now, I bring all this up to contrast it with last week's couple. Like, I, that's why I'm telling you all these details. Because Zechariah and, and Elizabeth, they were someone special. There's someone's in this culture. Zechariah was a priest. They were respected. The text says they were righteous and blameless before God. Like there's someone's. Joseph and Mary are nobodies. They're nobodies from nowhere. You got a poor young man with his junior high fiance in a small town, blue collar. That's what you get. Now, finally, in those first two verses, it's noted that Mary is a virgin. The Virgin Mary, we know that, okay? Uh, but that's an absolute necessity in this culture specifically because a junior high girl who's not a virgin is not a candidate for marriage in this society or actually in ours. Um, that, so, so just so you know, that's the Virgin Mary. But this is the scene. This is where we have to kind of put ourselves into the story, into the text, because then what happens next is just audacious knowing who it's happening to. So here we go. Into this family, God sends his number one angel to bring a spectacular message. Verse 28. And Gabriel came to Mary and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay. So that's the greeting from Gabriel to Mary. And it says that he greets her and then Mary was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled. Now, uh, why is she troubled at this point? I mean, that's actually the real important question is, I understand it if she was troubled after he told her she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. But that's not happened yet. All he's done is greeted her and she is troubled. He has said, you've found favor with God. You are God's favored one. So what's troubling about that greeting? Well, um, is she just kind of freaked out because she's seen an angel? Remember, we talked about that last week, Zechariah, he sees the angel and he gets terrified. And most people in the scriptures, when they encounter an angel, they just freak out. Is that what's going on? Is that why she's troubled? Maybe a little bit, but, but notice in the text, it says that she was greatly troubled at the saying. She's not troubled at the angel. The text explicitly says that she is troubled by what he says. And that is that she has been called the favored one. That's what's so troubling, that she is the favored one. That could also be translated the chosen one or the accepted one. So Gabriel says, hey, God's favored you, Mary. He, he, he's, he's chosen you. He's looked over all of the earth and Mary, you are his favored one. And hear me, that's, I think, what's troubling her at that moment. And I think it's troubling her because she knows the prophets. They would have all known the prophecy of a future Messiah associated coming from somebody who is highly favored by God. And, and Mary knows Mary. 
Mary knows where she's from. Mary knows the stock that she comes from. She knows the, the people. She knows the guy that she's with. Mary, Mary lives next to the gas station. That's who Mary is. Mary knows Mary. And so, God, why would you favor Mary? Why would you choose her? She's troubled because it doesn't make sense. She's troubled because it doesn't make sense. But then the text says that she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And I think this is really important. It's the first point I want to make about uh, this event, and it's this. When the angel appears, Mary questions. The first thing she does is she questions. The text says she's, she's trying to discern what sort of greeting this is. Now, uh, I've thought about that this week, and one of the pushbacks that I get from my non-Christian friends on Christianity, like one of the pushbacks that I get from non-believers is this. You Christians, you just don't ask questions enough. Like you don't ask questions. You just, you just kind of believe stuff on blind faith. You're just going to believe stuff, right? And, and hear me, I'm a skeptical person. I'm a rational person. I ask lots of questions, and so there's no way I could believe this stuff. The stuff that you believe. You religious people, you just believe. You just kind of shut your minds off, and you stop questioning, and you stop reasoning, and you just kind of believe, like, on hope and faith. But listen, that's not what Mary did. She just didn't believe. It's not like I just believed when the angel shows up to Mary, she's not like, oh, wonderful, an angel. I've heard about these kinds of things. This is great. I can't, it's not like a touch by an angel moment for her. She's not like ecstatic that there's an angel there. No, she's troubled. And she tries to discern what's going on. Now, the Greek word for discern is di... Man, I screwed this one up in the first service too. Greek, it's all Greek, okay? Uh, dialogo... Dialogizomai. Dialogi. That's something. Okay? No, it's dialogizomai. That's how you say it. I just wanted you to feel good about yourselves. Okay? Dialogizomai is the Greek. You don't need to know that or remember that. But here's, here's why I bring that up. Dialogizomai is actually an accounting term. Accountant? Okay? An accounting term. It means literally to take an audit. To take an audit. Dialogizomai means to, to be furiously rational, right? What that means is that when the angel shows up, Mary immediately starts asking questions, starts taking notes. She's taking stock. She's adding things up. She's weighing things out. She's working it all out. Hey, do you know that believing in God is a whole brain experience? Hey, what you and I believe, Christians in the room, what you and I believe, it takes a whole brain to work this stuff out. It's not just dumb faith that we've got. It's a whole brain activity. It's rational and it's emotional. And it's psychological and it's social. It's, it's a whole person experience. It's not just a feeling, it's discernment. It's, it's, it's not just your heart, it's your head, it's your mind, it's both. So that's what Mary does. She, she takes an audit. She tries to discern what's happening. And now she receives the actual message from Gabriel. That's just the greeting onto the message, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him, give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How will this be since I'm a virgin? So, See, the angel, that's the incredible message. That's the part that we're familiar about is kind of the, the message from Gabriel to Mary. He has this incredible message. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. This son is going to be great. He will be called Jesus. He will be the son of most high. He's going to sit on the throne of David. Okay, he's going to reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. That's the message. 
And, and Mary says, how's that gonna work? Because I'm a virgin. I'm a virgin. I know how that works. How's this gonna work? See, even after the proclamation, the declaration of God's message to Mary, Mary still has questions. She's still asking questions. So let's go back to our, you know, our skeptical friend, our non-believing friend, or really, let's just zoom out to, to all of the world right now, all of us and our unbelieving counterparts outside of this place. In our world right now, we are products of what's known as the Enlightenment and the modern period. The Enlightenment enters into modernity. So if you study history, you'll be familiar with this. But, but historically, well, here's what that means. We are products of the Enlightenment and modernity. Here's what that means. We, all of us, mentally have bought into a myth that says we are the enlightened ones. Because <laughs> we're products of the Enlightenment. We're post-enlightened. We're enlightened. We're the developed ones. You ever wonder why we call our nation a developed nation and other nations developing nations? That's a bit pejorative, right? Oh, someday you will be developed. Until now, you are developing, right? Like that's, you see that? Like we're the developed ones. We're the enlightened ones. We're the smart ones. We, we've got the inside track on knowledge and wisdom and how to do life. Listen, we do. We really do. I do. You do. We do. Everyone in our culture does. And that means we look down upon ancient times, Bible times, with this almost haughtiness. This, this idea that like, hey, they're just pre-modern people. They're pre-modern. They're pre-developed. They're pre-scientific. They're superstitious. And so people will say things like this. They'd never believe this stuff if they lived today. Mary would never believe this stuff if she lived today. As if people back then were just ignorant suckers. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Yeah. Sign me up on that one, okay? Right, you ever think that like your grandparents were more ignorant than you? They weren't. You're dumber than them, I promise, Okay. Serious, I mean, this, this what it's built into us. In the modern West, uh, I read one guy who said, we are among the most arrogant humans who have ever walked the planet. Because we think we're just so enlightened. We're rational, we're logical. We would never believe these silly fairy tales. But they back then had real questions as well. Like Mary had real questions about this. Uh, as, as modern kind of post-enlightened thinkers, here's, here's how we have been trained. We have been trained not to believe in the supernatural. Really, we've been kind of demystified in our culture. And so we just look for scientific explanations to everything. And eventually we think that we will scientifically be able to explain all that is. And so we see miracles like this and we're like, that's dumb. That's silly. It's superstitious. But hear me, Mary would have had her own barriers to get over intellectually to believe what the angel is saying. And as a first century Jew, she would have been trained to believe this. There's no way that God would ever become a human. See, we think too lowly of the divine they thought so highly of the divine that they would have been shocked by the claim that God condescended to become a human being. It was an affront. That's tantamount to heresy. It's actually what got Jesus killed, okay? If you look at the gospels, you read the gospels, he got killed because he claimed to be God. Not because he was a good dude. Not because he healed people and fed people. It's because he said, I'm God. <laughs> if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And that 
cannot fly in the first century. So Mary's barrier to belief, uh, to believe this angel's message is just as high as our barrier to believe in this message. It's just in a different category. We think it's superstitious, therefore it's dumb. She would have thought God would never do something like this. He's too holy. He's too high. So Mary has questions. She has questions about this Christmas. And hear me, some of you have questions about Christianity as well. You have questions about this stuff. Okay, so maybe some of you don't believe in God. Like you don't believe any of this stuff. You're skeptical and somehow you just showed up here. You just got drugged here by somebody. Man, some of you, you're, you're here because you're investigating, right? You're interested in God, but you don't believe this stuff. You're just like, what's going on with these Christian characters? And, and, and then maybe there are some of you who, who you don't believe yet, but you kinda, you're like, I want to believe. Like, I want to believe. I just am not there yet. And so you're kind of a seeker in that way. And so to those three categories of people, of course, you're going to have some questions about this. This is some wild stuff. Of course, you're going to have questions, but I do also want to add a fourth category, and that's everybody else in this room who already believes in Jesus. If you already believe in Jesus, like he's your savior, you're trying to follow him, but you still have questions about him? That's what I want to address. Because I hear this in different ways from different people, but the question that is always going on in our brains is, hey, if I believe in Jesus but I still have questions, am I okay? Like if I believe in Jesus, but I still don't know how this all works, can I still be a Christian? And the answer is, of course. Mary, some would argue, the first Christian, the first one who believed in Jesus, had a bunch of questions. You can have faith and have questions. The problem is there's some strands of evangelical Christianity specifically where questioning has been looked at as having some sort of deficiency of faith. That like somehow uh, having questions is incongruent with the life of faith. And just hear me, as a pastor, that's complete and utter nonsense. It's nonsense. I've been doing this for 20 years. Listen, I've got a ton of questions. A ton of questions for God, and that's why we study this thing so vehemently. It's not because it's just so fun. I mean, it is fun. I think it's fun. But, but, but it's because God has revealed himself to us in this, and this is where we go to address our questions. This is where we go to it. Questions are not incongruent with faith. In fact, listen, if you think you don't have any questions... Like, you're like, I, I don't really have any questions. You might not be di digging deep enough into who God is. You might not because he's not very easy to understand. You think you've got him figured out in that little peanut brain of yours? You might be deluded. I believe and I am working towards understanding. That's the mantra of Mary and of the Christian. So she questions now, I've got a question about this, okay? Because last week I preached on Zechariah and Elizabeth. And you might be saying, hey, uh, Zechariah, he had questions for Gabriel too. So if you remember last week, the same angel comes to Zechariah saying, hey, you are old, your, your wife is advanced, okay? You are there, you're barren, but you're gonna have a miracle son. You're gonna have this miracle son. He's gonna be John the Baptist. And Zechariah's literal response was this. How shall I know this? It's a question. How shall I know this? And for that, the angel strikes him mute as discipline for his disbelief. Puts him in his own little cave, his own little cocoon for nine months so he can, you know, it's the original go to your room. <laughs> Sent him to his room for nine months. Nope, you can't talk to anybody. You can't listen to anybody. Just go to your room. Nine months, you can come back out and tell us what you think. That's what happens. And, and, and for that, he's struck mute. Same angel. It's the same angel, Gabriel. Same message. Almost the exact same message. You're going to have a kid. It's going to be a little shocking, I know, but you're going to have a kid. But when Mary asks a question after the angel reveals that to her, the angel gives her answers and then leaves her alone. 
Just leaves her alone. No discipline at all. So what's that all about? Doesn't mean, like, did, did, did Zechariah get a grumpier version of Gabriel? Like Gabriel just woke up and was like, I'm just gonna give some discipline out. Is that what happened? Grumpy Gabriel? And this is just like he's in better, better mood for Mary? I didn't know. I literally had no idea. I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I read Tim Keller. Tim Keller points out this. He's helpful. He said, what we have here is a wonderful nuance in the Bible about questioning. It's a nuance here. In the Bible, questioning can be either honest questioning or dishonest questioning. There's an honest way to question God and there's a dishonest way to question God. So there's a way of questioning that, that's a sign of an open mind. It's honest. And then there's a kind of questioning that's a sign of a closed mind. And Keller calls that dishonest. There's a kind of questioning that, that genuinely is seeking answers, that wants answers, that wants the truth. And then there's a kind of questioning that doesn't want answers, that wants something else. There's a kind of questioning that shows that a person is open to the truth, like willing to suspend their disbelief. It stares upward with awe and says, God, how can these things be true? I, I don't understand, Lord, but I am ready to learn. This is Mary. It's this open questioning. Show me, I, I'm a virgin, help me with this. And then there's a kind of questioning that, hear me, it's, it's about staying in control of your life. It's actually proud and defiant. It's, it's disingenuine. It looks inward in itself in bitterness and it sees the promises of God and says, there's no way that could be true. And so the questions that Zechariah had were more of a barrier, a shield to protect him from the pain of his disbelief, his disillusionment and his disbelief. And so it's my second point that I see in the text. Okay, yes, Mary questions God, but while she questions, she trusts. Did you know you can question while trusting? You can entrust yourself to God and still be like, I don't know what you're doing. Help me understand. In her questioning, she still trusts God, whereas Zechariah distrusts. And Gabriel can see through it. He cuts to the matter. So the application for us then is, I hope you have some questions. I've already said, I think you're pretty shallow if you don't. I hope you have some questions, but the question is, what kind of questions do you have? What kind of questions do you have, and what would you say is underneath that? Is it honest or is it dishonest? Are you honestly questioning, or are you just using your question as sort of like this force field or shield to keep you from having to trust him? See, when you ask honest questions of God, it puts you in a position of humility and vulnerability. Let me explain this, okay? First, if you ask a question of God, it puts you in a place of humility because you're admitting that you don't know everything, that there's something that you don't know, that you don't understand, and that's why you're asking the question. So it's humble in its nature, but then also it's vulnerable. It's a posture of vulnerability because if you ask a question of God, he might answer you. And if you're humble in that question and he answers you, what happens if that answer contradicts what you want? What if he doesn't answer the way you want? What if he shatters your categories with his answer? What if he demands things from you that you feel like you're not ready to give up yet? What if he answers you? That's a vulnerable place to put yourself in, and that's how you know if your questions are honest or dishonest. 
Will you trust him even if he doesn't answer the way you want him to? So Mary questions. Mary questions from a posture of trust and then the angel answers her. So let's look at this. Verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, and it's like the scriptures will not give up on how old this gal was. (laughs) In her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And here's the verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. That verse, that last verse, I think is the real difference between Zechariah and Mary. That's my hunch, okay? The only explanation for why Gabriel treated Zechariah one way and Mary the other way is is that Mary, I think, trusts that line. Nothing's impossible with him. Nothing's impossible with God, and Zechariah just doesn't believe that God can do what God says he can do. Hey, the, the problem isn't that people have questions. The problem can be the heart behind those questions. Okay, it's, it, it is the heart in a posture of trust or not? See, many of you have questions. Many of you do. Many of us have these. God, why would you do this? God, why is this happening? To me or to somebody else? God, why is our world like this? And the question for you is this. Are are those questions coming from a place of humility? Like, are you open to the possibility of a God who might give you an uncomfortable answer to that question? Or are they proud? Are they arrogant? Have you already made up your mind about how God should act? And if he goes against that, then I don't believe in him anymore. That's not honest questioning. That's dishonest trying to justify yourself. Here's a way of saying it, okay? Uh, We all have questions. You have questions. Are you willing to question your questions? Seriously, have you put any scrutiny to your actual question? Are you willing to question your questions? Are you willing to look at what's under the questions? Are you trusting in the goodness of God before your questions? Or are they so firmly fixed in your mind that, they're, that you're closed off to God who might contradict you? I've always heard it put that if you have a God who never contradicts you, you're probably praying to yourself. And I'm going to say this from 20 years of pastoral ministry experience the top reason why I see people walk away from their faith is this. Questions about pain. Questions about pain. You've gone through something and you never trusted God with it. You might have said that you did, but you never trusted God because God would never let that happen this way. And listen, I don't know what it is for you, but sometimes he lets it happen. It's their inability to accept that a good God could ever allow such a thing to happen, and so they walk. I've watched it. Church, do you trust him this Christmas? Even if you can't figure it out. Even if you got questions, have you ever trusted him with the very questions that you have? We got one more verse. Mary responds one more time to Gabriel. Look at verse 38. Middle school Mary, picture middle school Mary saying these words. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's astounding. 13 years old. That's an astounding response from middle school Mary. My third point, my third point. Mary questions, Mary trusts, 
And then finally, Mary surrenders. She surrenders. She lets go. She surrenders everything. I mean, we think about this story and we're like, this is the greatest story ever told. Right? We think of this story and we're like, it's Christmas. Mary, you're going to be famous. Mary, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be people who worship you. You're going to be venerated by some. Mary, this is a good news moment. But what's astounding here is that to Mary, this all would not have sounded like good news on the front end. You understand that? Like this would not have been an awesome moment for Mary. Like we think, oh, she gets to be a player in this incredible monumental moment of human history. And she is not planning on how this goes. This is not part of her plan. She, listen, Mary had a script for her life. She had a script for her life. She was going to marry Joseph. She was going to marry Joseph. She was going to make him shave that wispy little mustache off first, okay? But then they were going to walk down the aisle. They were going to get married. They were going to be a a normal couple. She was going to have a family the normal way. Okay, she knows how the birds and the bees work. That's normal. She knows normal. There's going to have babies the normal way. They're going to raise their kids in normal Nazareth. He's going to have a normal carpentry practice. That's just going to be their normal life. Her plan was normalcy. That's what her plan was. And in this moment, she surrenders all of that. Every ounce of normalcy is gone. I mean, think about it. Her reputation from here on out is shattered amongst her friends. You ever realize that, that, that God doesn't make anybody else aware of this situation other than Mary and Joseph? Like nobody else in Nazareth knows. They just see Mary starting to plump up. Right? And they're like, wait a second, we can do math. We're not idiots. This is pre-modern, but we know how to count. Nine months, they're betrothed. What happened? You think the rumor mill around Nazareth wasn't just a buzz from these two? It's like, Gabriel, how about just announcing this to all of Nazareth and making it a little easier on us? But that's not what happens. Still, she surrenders everything. And I know we sing songs like we, oh, we smell the Christmas. We like sing the songs. So like Silent Night. Okay, we love that. Silent Night. Great song. Okay. Uh, but that's not how she, she's not singing Silent Night thinking, oh man, this is what I want. On the road, in the stable, no room for us in the inn. We like, we turn that into like a cutesy story. It would have been awful. Silent Night. I, I, I get it. Silent Night. You ever seen a birth? I mean, some of you have, some of you have seen, uh, you know, video or something in a class at some point. Uh, It is not calm, okay? It is not tender or mild. There is no heavenly peace happening at a birth, okay? Uh, The way I said it in first service, uh, giving birth is more like uh, the end of a UFC fight. It just is, okay? I mean, there are fluids everywhere. People are passing out. There's screams and cries. And that's just in the hospital, okay? With like doctors with scrubs on. This is in a barn with animals around. Still, she surrenders it. Let it be to me according to your word. What a statement. Church, this Christmas... I want Joseph and Mary to be examples for us. Like, that's what I want. I want, I, I, I want Joseph and Mary to be the examples. So, so here's what we just saw in the text. Not the dog food version, but the real version. If you have questions, so did she. If you've got questions, even hard ones, about what God's doing, or why he's doing it, or how he's doing it, you're in good company. In the Holy Scriptures, you have friends that have gone through that. But just like Mary, gosh, I would encourage you, you need to take a diagnostic of your heart. Run that through the scan to figure out, am I questioning from a place of trust? Do I really want to know the answer? Am I questioning from a place of trust? Because what if it doesn't go the way that I want? What if normal's what I want and God blows that up in my face? Because that's an option if you question from a posture of trust. Will you trust him? And then finally, if you trust him, are you willing to surrender it 
the story that you have for your life, the normal that you're planning for your life, for your future wedding, for your future children, for your future grandchildren, for your finances, for your retirement, for the end of your life? Will you sacrifice? Will you surrender those things if they're not in alignment with God's will? See, this is the Jesus that we are preparing to welcome on Christmas Day. He's the one that shatters our normal and demands our complete surrender. And that's what Christmas is about. That's the real aroma of Christmas. Surrendering all to him. Hey, if you haven't surrendered to him, if you haven't and, and, and you want to, like you just feel like there's some stuff that you want to surrender to him. I'm not going to like lead you in some weird prayer or something like that. That's for another day, another time. May I suggest that you take Mary's prayer and pray it for yourself. Verse 38, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I can't think of a better prayer this Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we do bless your name. We do thank you for the good message of the gospel found in the Christmas message. Gosh, Lord, some of this stuff is hard to believe. It's hard to believe in angels. It's hard to believe in immaculate conception. It's hard to believe that you became a person and experienced everything for us. It's hard to believe that you went to the cross and died and that somehow if we put our trust in you, that counts for us. It's credited to us. Gosh, it's hard to believe that someday we will be raised with you where every tear will be wiped away, where every bad thing will be made untrue. It's hard to believe these things and yet, Lord, you ask us to trust you. So, Father, give us faith to trust what you say. Like little Mary. Give us a posture of trust, a posture of surrender. However we came into this Christmas, I pray, Lord, we'd, we'd open our hands. We'd take our grip that's on whatever is holding us back. Just loosen that a little bit and let it off. And then you'll give us some answers, Lord even if they're the ones we don't want to hear. So I pray this over my friends. I pray this over my church family. Lord, use these magnificent stories, these events in our history to lead us closer to you. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people agreed and said, amen.